Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Loeb, Blasting Game. And today I will be interviewing an awesome man in recovery. Dave grew up in Anaheim, California. His father left when he was two, and they met again when he was 30. He was raised by his mother and stepfather, who were, as he describes, hippie bikers, and his stepdad was often confused with ZZ Top. Dave has 24 years of sobriety after getting sober at 22. His best friend committed suicide the same day Dave found out that he had been sleeping with his wife. Through all of this, he did not pick up a drink or a drug and has been able to build a beautiful, sober life. We are so excited to have him here today to share his story. All right, episode six, let's do this. Dave, I am so excited to have you on this program and have you share your story with us today. It's an incredible story. Will you tell us, I know you grew up in Huntington Beach and your parents were kind of hippie bikers, you know, but it was a relatively, as you called it, normal childhood. Will you tell us about that? Sure. We, um, my parents would, we would go camping and do family stuff and um, I wasn't allowed to hang around with bad kids and we would get in a lot of trouble for lying and all of the things that like a good, healthy yeah. family life would be. They just happened to be using for quite a while until I was 14. And what happened when you were 14? <clears throat> uh, we all went to Catalina because yeah. we would go every year and camp. Yeah. And they just left their stuff at home to get off of it. Oh, so To like, like detox. So, okay. So back up with me. What, like when you say, like, what was life like with parents that were, you know, hippie bikers? Well, they were, my dad, people would ask my dad if he was a ZZ Top. So that gives you an idea of what he looks like. Right. And, um, (laughs) I, like I said, they were, they really were great parents. It's just that they used drugs, not really a lot of alcohol, but mostly drugs like through the sixties and seventies and I think it just lingered for a while. Did you know? Like, were you a little kid going, okay, I know. I don't remember, but my mom had told me that I had seen a couple of things, like a plate before with a bunch of stuff on it, and I just had never, I didn't, she got worried, and then I never acknowledged it. But I don't, there's like big, big blind spots in my childhood that I don't remember. Like, probably 80% I don't remember. 80%? Yeah, I don't know why, yeah. I think it might be just that being an alcoholic and focused on feeling good yeah. With ADD in there too. That yeah. Maybe I was so driven towards like, I remember thinking, what am I going to do next that's fun? And focusing on like the next class, who's in it that I get to see and the next thing. And, and I'd get real uncomfortable if I didn't have something fun planned right. at some point. And I think I was, to. yeah. So I think I just, all of those types of things I remember, but all of the like in between stuff, I really don't. And I think maybe it just, it just didn't like stay in my head consciously because it wasn't something I was excited about or something. But so to back up, we would go, I think, around seven or eight years old. So actually, let me back up a little bit further. So my mom, my biological father left when I was two. Okay. And then my stepdad came into my life, I think, when I was seven. Okay. And he's my dad today. He's awesome. I did meet my biological father at 30. Do you know why he left? I think it was just a tumultuous situation. And at some point he um, felt like he, it was better off not being in my life. 
I mean, I talked to him a little bit about that, and he said, you know, when I did meet him, that that was the reasoning. Yeah. And so I don't, what I'm do not you, in contact with him today, but. What do you think about that? It was, um, so what happened was a friend of mine, his mom worked for the district attorney's office, and okay. she was closing out old child support cases. Right. And she saw my name. And there was, like, addresses and letters that he had written about child support. And so she told my friend, hey, I'm not really supposed to do this, but if right. Dave wants the address, then oh, wow. you can contact him. Yeah. So, so it wasn't something you were even looking for. No, no. But But growing up, like, yeah. you know, there would be, like, that show, like, Phil Donahue or whatever on, and they're, like, reunite Families. parents with their yeah. sons or fathers with their sons, and I'd get emotional. So I know, like, yeah. that— Yeah, it was there. Yeah, it was it was there. So my parents—so uh, I, I ended up writing him a letter— and he wrote back. And, and the weird thing is, without me even knowing it, like, I had an idea in my head of what he looked like. And um, oh, you've maybe never he seen would, a picture of him? Just from 1972, oh, right, 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 right? Right, right, And so I was thinking, like, I just imagined him a certain way. And then I was thinking, maybe he's sober. What if he's sober? Like, you hear stories about, like, all of a sudden the, the dad ends up being sober in a 12-step program right. also. And so... Sort of had that idea going on without even really consciously thinking about it. And then I met him, and um, it didn't turn out that way. And so, good guy, but I, I don't keep in touch with him. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, is that, you know, going through the 12 steps, I got rid of the resentment that I had early on. Yeah. That I, I reconciled that he was doing the best that he could. Right. I was okay with that. Right. And then once I did go through that whole process, I realized that... Um, that there was closure that I didn't even know I needed. And yeah. I never wondered about it again. It was all, like, all, I didn't even realize that I was wondering that much. Yeah. And had like these open things in my yeah. mind. And, you know, like I said, I have a great relationship with my with my stepdad, who's my dad. He's awesome. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's, you know, the universe providing for you right. what you can, you know, doing for you what you can't do for yourself. It's awesome. So he left when you were a kid. Your dad's, your stepdad came into your life at seven. Mm -hmm. What was going on then? So we would, I think around eight years old, they had, he had always had Harleys. And so we would go out to Cook's Corner mm -hmm. in Tribuco Canyon, Biker Bar. And uh, I'd played pinball and my brother would shoot pool and then I'd go to sleep in the booth and they would hang out. And then sometimes all of the bikers would come back to our house all night and then... I'd wake up in the morning and they would still be playing like Uno and Dice from all night. And I didn't know what they were doing, you know, but yeah. obviously they were wide awake for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> they were, there were some uppers involved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So did you have any inkling that this was different than friends or, or maybe not? No, I, um, you know, and we'll get into it a little bit further, but I really didn't have like, I felt like. Oddly enough, I have a lot of awareness now, and I didn't. I don't think I had any sort of like consciousness back then. Yeah. Like I don't. I didn't ever think about that. I felt different or uncomfortable. And then the first time I took a drink, I realized how uncomfortable yeah. I felt. Yeah. Where you hear some people talk about yeah. that their whole life they felt different. Yeah. I didn't even know that I felt different. I just felt different. Right. And I didn't know that. Right. And so, then and then the alcohol was like, oh, now I feel better. This, right. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. then I just realized how different I actually did feel. Yeah. You know. So, so that's kind of, I think the same thing was happening growing up. I just really just kind of went from situation to situation. I, I wasn't, I didn't feel like, I felt like I had a good childhood. I felt like I had great parents. My stepdad is awesome. My mom's awesome. I'm super close with both of them. 
And, you know, my mom was a single mom for a long time and doing the best she could. And she did yeah. a good job. And I mean, even growing up, everybody would tell my parent or my mom how much, how great me and my brother were. Right. I have one brother and two stepsisters that right. are my dad's daughters. Okay. So. so I grew up with my brother. He was, um, he's two years older. So we were pretty close growing up. And then when my stepdad came into the picture, he had two daughters. So it was the four of us. So we, my brother lives in Huntington Beach still. And then my, one of my stepsisters lives in Irvine. And then the other one, nobody really talks to. No, <laughs> that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the black sheep. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it, it happens in all families. Mm -hmm. So what, as you got into, so you're kind of raised in this with these, you know, this biker bar gang mentality and, um, but you don't know the difference. And so it's interesting that your parents were, you know, that they had all those rules, like you can't hang out with these people. Yeah. And, you know, they still like all those things It just, the dichotomy is really interesting. When did you take your first drink? Uh, I think I was 16, the summer after my senior year in, or junior year in high school. So I, I started running when I was 11 or 12. Like cross-country? Cross yeah, and, and started doing like 5Ks, and we did like these mini triathlons when I was like 13. And then I got into high school, and I was a cross-country runner and track runner, and I did really well, set records in track, and was on varsity, only freshman on varsity all four years. I it was In fact, that was great for my self-esteem, all of that. But So I, I stayed away from any sort of partying at all during that time. In fact, the interesting thing that happened the first time that I took a drink, some of my friends as, you know, going through freshman, sophomore, junior year, my friends were starting to drink and smoke yeah. pot. And, uh, and I would get upset with them because I, we were, we were very competitive runners. I right, mean, right. very serious about it. So, and then one weekend I was down in Newport and, uh, I don't know why I decided to drink, but, um, these older people were with us and they had like 151 and Coke and, I just had maybe like a third of a red solo cup of, of 151 that. was your first drink? Yeah, yeah. Not much, though, because <laughs> the police pulled up and I threw it down. Oh, boy. But the minute that I felt it, it was like I like literally took a hard right. I mean, I instantly, I looked at my friend and I said, we're doing this every weekend from now on. And if you asked me the weekend before, I was completely against it. Yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah. it, was, it was exactly what other people describe. I mean, the physical allergy, all of that stuff, it was so strong that it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's intense, that feeling of just feeling right mm -hmm. and good and all the anxiety that you have in there just goes away. Right. So then the the next weekend, I, for some, I don't even know how it came about, but I drank a full bottle of Night Train, which is also a terrible drink and blacked wow. out and threw up. And then it was yeah. kind of like always like that. I didn't really have periods of normal drinking at all. At all? It, no, no. I was blacking out all the time from the very beginning. And how, how did that affect your family life and cross country and all of that? Did that all fall apart? Yeah. So I, um, I was drinking a lot, blacking out all the time. And then I started hanging around with some people and they would go to raves, which were, this is like 1989, 90. So it was like the real ones that you, <laughs> yeah, know, the you real had to call. Yeah, yeah, and the, You know. You had to call the, the you know, an hour before, and then they tell you where the where location is, and then you walk around, and people are saying acid, doses, you know, X, and you're walking around through the place just buying stuff openly. I mean, it was crazy. So for some, so I started doing all of that, and for some reason, when I would 
do drugs, I wouldn't drink one drop of alcohol. I couldn't even get it down. I mean, oh, nothing. Interesting. So there was like pe long periods of time that I did not, that I didn't drink when I was heavily using drugs. And then when I got into meth, absolutely no alcohol at all. So there were long periods, So, but there were no periods of time from that first drink that you ever stopped using on your own. Yeah, no. No, I I always was using something. I mean, even to the degree of, I didn't like to smoke pot at all, but I would do it every night or yeah. every day if that is all I had. I mean, there was no... I relate to yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Right. So, I mean, it was for sure I had to be doing something. I mean, I remember specifically this time that I had like, I wasn't even into pills, but I happened to have a Vicodin. Mm -hmm. And this guy, my buddy said, well, give me half of that. And I'm like, it's one Vicodin. What are we going <laughs> to split it, you know? And so... I said, well, give me your little pot pipe. And so I put it in there and I just tried to like smoke it. Smoke it. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't do anything. Gross. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it was just like any, anything yeah. that we could possibly do, oh, I yeah. would do. And it was just, that's how it was. It was well, on. And do you stop running? I did. Yeah. I, so when I started drinking more and more and I started getting into like doing acid and ecstasy, yeah. I went to Orange Coast College. I'd start a semester, not finish it, start again, not finish it. I tried running there and I just wasn't, the priority wasn't there and it. That's where it all sort of turned. And then, and so I, I was doing, I was using those types of drugs for a period of time and I never wanted to use meth because of, you know, what my parents had gone through. But I was not opposed to trying to make a little money. So <laughs> right. I bought some for somebody, sold them some and figured I'd sell the rest. And then I decided, well, just like swallow some of it, just eat it. And which, you know. Eat it? Yeah, you just put it in like toilet paper and just... <laughs> eat it, which it works just fine. But I was like, I don't want to snort it. I'm not going to snort it. Right. Cause that's a, right. right. That's, that's a, that's a line. Yeah, that level, yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and I did it that, that day and I did it every day for a year and a half from that point on. And the end was getting arrested and possession and all that stuff. So you the interesting thing. You only ate it? No, that lasted a week. And oh, okay, okay, it. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, cross yeah those the line boundaries, somewhere. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Our invisible boundaries is like they, you know, most people they 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 move their priorities to, you know, what is it to meet their goals? Right, and right. We, we move our goals to, you know, meet our behavior. Exactly. So the interesting thing is, is the the very first place that I did that was in the ba the bathroom of a Taco Bell. And there was a Ralph's in that parking lot. And a, a year and a half later, I got arrested in that parking lot for possession. And I was all over the place. I mean, it was like Dana Point, Mission Viejo, all over. I wasn't even, I wasn't really around Huntington at that point. It was South County. But it was interesting that the first. Yeah, like the yeah. first, what I hear in your story a lot is like the first, you know, seeing that first time is actually really important in your story because mm -hmm. It sets off like those people who talk about like I had a drink and I could not put that, you know, that was it. Like if I right. have one, I don't know what's going to happen and I keep going. You, I mean, yours is like that for yeah. a year, you right. know, it's like right. and when you started drinking, that was it. Like here's cross country, this big priority, it's competitive and boom, it's gone yeah. and, and every weekend you're loaded. So what happened was I that just took me down really hard and and my parents, you know, I'd called them one day from a pay phone. There wasn't really cell phones going on back then. And uh, to ask for help, they didn't answer. So I fell asleep at this girl's house who her mom called my parents. And so I woke up to them standing there and I took off, you know, like, <laughs> even though I was asking for help earlier, I'm yeah. like, I don't know, I'm yeah, out of yeah. here, you know. Moment of clarity yeah. is gone. Right, right. And so I ended up going with them. They said, listen, there's a, um, there's a place called Hogue that you can go to for treatment. 
or you can go to, you can stay in our motorhome outside of our house and I'd fake the motorhome, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, at that point, I would just smoke weed at night to try to just like not continue using anything. And I remember at that time, my mom, they didn't, they were worried about me with all the drug use and they said, why don't you just drink and just, you know, Mm. mellow out and just drink like normal people and I said okay and so I really got into drinking at that point again. Interesting so your parents they decided at when you were 14 just to stop using amphetamines Mm -hmm. and they did that they detoxed on you know Catalina and that was it. Yeah. What was their was their drinking intense after that and did do you think they had any understanding of addiction? They did not drink a lot when I was growing up. I never noticed it. Yeah. And yeah. and actually my mom stopped drinking, I think maybe like eight or 10 years ago now. Oh, okay. And she said that she was an alcoholic yeah. and she needed to stop. And I was surprised actually. Interesting. I mean, I yeah. think I saw her drunk twice. Right. Ever. But, you know, the interesting thing about that is, is that, um, it's everybody's own personal struggle. Right. She would tell herself she didn't want to drink. She would drink, right. drink too much, even if it was just in the evenings and then over and over and over. So Right. It's about how it may, it's, it's the, the similarities, not the differences. Right, right. You know, the feelings that we have around alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you, you're like, no, Hogue, I'm good. <laughs> I'm yeah. going gonna, gonna, to, you know, drink and stay in this, this trailer, right, or the yeah. motor RV, motorhome. Yeah. So what, what did your drinking look like? From there? I was drinking every day. Not usually in the morning. You know, I had like this rationale that, I mean, not that I had a drinking problem. Obviously. I had the rationale that, who would, would you rather be sober or would you rather be buzzed? And right. being under the influence of alcohol just is like a logical choice. Yeah. And so. Makes sense. Right. And at the time it really did. Yeah. Like that was my rationale. And uh, Well, it was your medicine. I mean, it was, right. you were self-medicating for that anxiety. Clearly, Especially given that the first time you had it, it was such a right turn. Right. So I I was blacking out. Like at that point, I started drinking a lot, and uh, and I would still go out a lot. Like when I was using, I I was like indoors, I didn't yeah. do anything, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then I would just go out with a couple of friends, or you know, you know, to some bar or something. And I was blacking out like probably four or five days a week, and it was, and it, you know, I was just talking to somebody recently about that. It wasn't like I never had, like if there was mixed drinks, mm-hmm. I never had a martini. Mm-hmm. I, never, I didn't ever even had like Jägermeister. I don't even think, I didn't, I'm sure it was around back then, but it was like literally eight shots of vodka just from the point I, I want to get, I want to get drunk. Yeah, right. So like that was really the whole point. Like it wasn't, you know, you hear people Not talk about taste. that in 12-step programs yeah. that like drink for effect. That's really what it was. Yeah. And so there was no like, I remember one time there was like some Midori and vodka. And so I just put a splash of Midori and a glass of vodka. Like it was never yeah. about like, you yeah. know. And, and a lot of times I would take a bottle of vodka was sort of my drink, but just turn it upside down and count to 10 gulps and then black right. out. You know, I mean, that was the deal. And, and then the next day, say, "Oh, that was so much fun," <laughs> and not remember anything. Not remember. Yeah, right. Were right. you? Was there any piece of you that was like, maybe this isn't normal, or this might be a problem? Any like any piece of you that questioned this lifestyle? Nothing at that point. The drugs, yes, but like not I, the drinking. Right, not the drinking. The drugs, I just felt like. I mean, it was obvious. I would like wake up and tell myself. You know, because if you're doing meth long enough, you're sleeping and you're eating mm-hmm. and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So 
I would wake up and tell myself, I don't want to do it today. And then the bell would go off and 30 minutes later, I'm doing it. And it over and over and over and over and over. And just not, you know, my skin just looked gray and I'd cut myself and I wouldn't heal for three weeks. And it, I just was not, it was clear that I was like strung out. And um, so when I was able to stop that, alcohol was sort of, I had a drug problem, not an alcohol problem. Right. And even when I ended up having to go to meetings because of being on a court card. I don't know if everybody knows what a court card is. If you get arrested, then you have to end up going to, at, at that time they called it drug diversion, where you do like this program and they, you know, do classes and like test your urine and all that type of stuff. And I, um, so I went through that and I had to start going to meetings for that. And um, when I would go, I mean, I went to a couple 12-step meetings and um and I just held on to that I had a drug problem. That right. was the issue, not yeah. alcohol. Even though there was a couple of meetings I went to where I went halfway through the meeting and went to my car and drank some beer and then went back in the meeting. But yeah. it was a drug problem, not an alcohol problem. I you know? completely relate to that. And that was the thing that kept me going out. Right. I, it was, the drug problem was easy to identify and say, okay, yeah, I know this is bad. But the alcohol, you know, you can normalize. Yeah. And so, so I went into a 12-step program. And I really didn't want to be sober. Like, I didn't want to feel how I was feeling anymore. Yeah. It wasn't that I was like, knew I was done. And and you hear people talk about in meetings, like, if you don't know you're done, go out and drink until you know you're done. Or if you don't think you're an alcoholic, go try some controlled drinking. My experience with that is that I did not know. I was 22. How would I know? I didn't have any clear view on anything. 22 years old when I got sober. I had no clear view all I knew is, is that I didn't want to feel that way anymore, and people were smiling. And I went to this meeting, and this I identified as an alcoholic, and I wasn't going to, but I did it anyway. And um, this guy came up to me and said, you're Dave, right? And he remembered, and I was like, wow, somebody cares. You know, like it, yeah. just in my mind, I, I held on to it because I was in so much fear, you know. And so he ended up becoming my sponsor, and that kind of led to me and my sobriety. So you were 22 at this time. You went to meetings for the drug problem and on a court card. And then you were kind of running out and you would have a drink in the car kind of deal. When So this meeting where you got this sponsor and you, you stopped drinking, was that right after the time where you were like, was the intention when you went to that 12-step meeting to stop drinking? Like the one that you met your sponsor, was that... Like, or was that still just for the drugs? I had no intention on stopping drinking at that point. Um, in fact, I got his number and I talked to him a little bit. He was this old punk rock guy and they played in, in a band. And um, and I went actually to this this place in Costa Mesa that's closed down now. And I saw, I don't know if you ever heard of Gas Huffer, but I went to see <laughs> Gas Huffer band. And, yeah. um, and I blacked out. But I remember seeing him there. And, uh, and I, I remember I had blacked out. And then the next day, he, I'm sure it was like a strategic move. The next day he called me and he said, hey, why don't you come to a meeting? And I said, okay, sure. Yeah. So I went and uh, met him there. And then I think I drank one more day and it wasn't like a, a big deal. I think I had a couple beers and it just was the end. I just was tired of it. And so I started going to meetings and um, and I still was holding on to the idea that I wasn't an alcoholic, that it was I was just a drug addict. And then at some point I started like the idea that I started 
hearing the similarities instead of the differences. Because at first I'd say, well, I'm not drinking Jack Daniels at 6 a.m. I'm not like all of these things that, that mean that I'm not an alcoholic. Looking but, for the differences. Right. And yeah. then I start looking at similarities and, and about how I felt inside mm-hmm. and what, especially about when I start looking at the physical allergy and when I would drink. I mean, I it was very, very clear to me once I got sober that I would take one drink and there was no stopping it. I mean, there was a few times that I did. I remember um, in the in the program it, it says uh, try some controlled drinking. I think in uh, to paraphrase, there's a part that you leave a half a drink. And so I remember I had gone to this bar and I drank. Of course, I had a couple drinks first with the plan <laughs> to leave a half. Right. And uh, and I I drank half of it and then I put the half down and then I'm like, okay, I'm walking away. Not going to drink the half. Just walk away. I don't have a problem. And it was like really that much effort to leave a half a beer. That's not the idea. The idea is just leave it like you don't care. You right, know what I mean? Right, Where right. mine was like this whole production yeah. <laughs> to leave the half, you know? So, you got to say there's a, like a farewell ceremony, right, right, exactly. you know, writing car- letters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, there's a saying, you know, that goes the great obsession of every alcoholic is that they can drink like a normal drinker. Right. And can you control and enjoy your drinking at the right. same time? So that was something that that I learned. It was like – you can you control and enjoy your drinking together right. i can eat, control it or i can enjoy it and the control is like a joke mm-hmm. and like it's like how you described it where you're like backing away right, you know right. you know it's this whole ordeal like to control it isn't just like trying to wrestle a you know a monster right. and then enjoying it has zero control and i don't know if you felt like if that's hindsight that you noticed that or if or if you can remember trying to so i remember i had a boyfriend who <laughs> you'll appreciate this so we we tried to fix each other and we both had serious drug problems and we you know everything problems and he was like you have a cocaine problem and i'm like you're a heroin addict and so we we he actually took me to my first meeting and that was the first time I ever tried to stop doing anything. Mm. And I really thought I could stop. I re- like I didn't realize that it was going to be this big, pro- you know, this big production. Sure. And so I was truly surprised when I, you know, I, I was doing it to try to prove to somebody that I didn't have a problem. Right. And and then my rationale was when when it became clear that this was very difficult was like, well, I don't want to quit anyway. Like, yeah, yeah, this course. is stupid. What right. am I do? Why am I trying to prove myself? I don't need to prove, you know, to him, blah, blah. And yeah, I mean, there was definitely, I, I was, the first time I figured that out was like, someone else had to prompt that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I didn't, for me, like I didn't have, it was, I felt like looking back, my mind just went 150 miles an hour all the time, Yeah, all the time. And I do remember one time I was smoking meth and I was with this girlfriend at the time and she looked at me and she like kind of disgusted and she's like, don't you think you've smoked that too much? And I instantly threw it down and broke the pipe and then she walked away and then I got another pipe out of my pocket. You know, I was, <laughs> but it was interesting. I was like, wow, that was really defensive. I did notice right. like that I was really defensive about it yeah. just for like a, a second and then kind of moved on from it. But like I said, it became apparent that I had a real drug problem 
Right. It's just the alcohol I was trying to hold on to. I see a lot of people do, they switch from one to another and from one substance to another. And, and alcohol tends to be the one where if someone has a drug problem and they stop doing that drug, they, oh, I'm just smoking weed now. I'm just right. drinking now. And for some people, they manage and that's totally fine. But then you have the other, you know, percentage of people where they're just switching addictions. And that kind of sounds like what happened with you. For sure. So I, I ended up deciding that I wanted to stop drinking. Right. And even at that point, like I would go hang out in these, in my sponsor's garage, they played in a punk band and they would practice in the garage and I go in there and, and I was really just, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was just full of fear constantly. I mean, like I can't describe how much fear I was in all the time. And I had no friends because everybody was drinking and using. So I stopped talking to everybody. Yeah. And I just started hanging out with them a little bit. And, you know, my mind's going a million miles an hour. I mean, I remember one time this guy, Jeff, was the lead guitarist in this band. And I'm sitting there. And I don't know if this is like an obsessive compulsive thing, that component of my personality, if it's just the ism or what it is. But I would just have these weird impulses, like, as they're practicing to, like, smack his hand off the guitar sitting there by myself, like what, like just... It's, it's called an intrusive thought. Is that what it is? Yeah, they're called wait, intrusive thoughts. Yeah, but it, but it was weird because I am I just remember feeling like I was kind of crazy. Yeah, I, I, mean, I get that. Yeah. So I was like, I mean, I would go into a meeting and not make eye contact with anybody. I would sit down, they'd pass out the reading, and I would just make sure that they did not look at me to read because I could not imagine having to do that in the group. But in high school, I was like the kind of person that considered taking a zero before an oral report every single time. I mean, I was just, my face would turn bright red. I was so embarrassed. I mean, it was like an ordeal to even do that. And so I was just, all of that fear was, I just felt like everything was going 150 miles an hour and super, super loud. So I remember I, I was going to this meeting and I, and I said that, you know, I told myself I need to share at some point. And so for like two months straight, I would plan on it and plan on it and plan on it. And then finally one night, it was like dark in the meeting and I shared, you know, for probably like 40 seconds or something. And and I finished and that was it. And then I, for the whole rest of my first year of sobriety, I didn't share. I mean, it was like just to describe like how fearful I was all the time. Yeah, yeah. So at that time, I, um, at 60 days sober, my sponsor uh, was dating somebody and she was friends with this girl and they introduced us. And, um, and so I met my now ex-wife when I had 60 days sober. Mm. I was, you know, I had done an inventory at, at 60 days. I mean, I was like, you know, I didn't even know that I could just not work the steps. I just, yeah, you just just did it it because I didn't, I was just in fear. So I was like, he told me what to do and I was, I just did it. And so I ended up meeting her and it was, she had, I think, a year sober, and I had 60 days, and then we ended up um, we ended up staying together for 14 years, two daughters who are 19 and 17, almost 18 now. And it was, you know. what? So you guys got together, and what was your relationship like with her? She was a really good, she was a really good wife, made dinner, like uh, she actually, you know, was really good to me, but I just... One of the issues with getting into a relationship when you're newly sober is I had always thought that it would jeopardize your sobriety. 
that was like the main focus. Right. And what I realized is, is that you, I had no idea who I was as a person, like zero. Right. So I'm like in a relation, I'm picking someone to be in a relationship with without even knowing myself. And so, you know, as we stayed together, we just, we grew apart. One of my daughters, uh, my older one was very difficult when she was a baby on. And so she, it put a lot of strain on the relationship and already a relationship that was already pretty, not like a real intimate, affectionate relationship. I wasn't affectionate and I could not bring myself to be affectionate to the point where I like, at one point was ready to go to like the meadows in Arizona for yeah. like intimacy problems I because went there. I thought there was something wrong. You did? Yeah. I went to the meadows in Arizona <coughs> for intimacy problems. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was great. I almost went. And, yeah, it was and wonderful. I, and I, because I, I mean, I remember she had bought me a books on it and I'm yeah. thinking what happened because I had this weird, weird vision of something that might've happened to me when, when I was young and I just was like, you know, something's off. And, um, and unfortunately I just, uh, I wasn't in love with her and I didn't know that. Yeah. I just couldn't know that. I didn't when, even know what that was. When do you think that happened? When do you think you fell out of love with her? I mean, I had 60 days sober. Mm-hmm. She had a year. Yeah. And for a long time in my sobriety, I was just, I did not really know who I was. Yeah. So I don't know that I ever was really in love with her ever. Right. Right. Just you just didn't know. Did, you just didn't know. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and that's, that's, you're trying to find yourself. I mean, you get sober and you get sober and, you know, there's anesthetizing for all that other time and you get sober and then you're supposed to like jump into being a functioning adult right. who's mature and all these things. You haven't had all the, you've been blacked out for all the other life lessons, maturing, growing that everybody else has gone through. But, you know, you look like a grown 22 year old man, not the, not the young 16 year old boy that you actually are emotionally right. from when you started drinking. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what, how did the relationship fall apart? Well, I was wor- I was working out of town a lot, and the kids were getting a little bit older. And so what happened was um, I was just running amok with a friend of mine, my best friend at the time, and uh, just doing stuff that any man with integrity wouldn't do if you're married, right? And what ended up happening was um, I finally had told her that I wanted a divorce, and it crushed her, and, it you know, it was extremely stressful moment. And, um, so I moved in with my best friend and then he like two weeks into that, he called me one day and said, Hey, I told her about everything you were doing and I'm in love with her and I'm sleeping with her. So that my best friend said that. So wait, so your best friend called you and said, I've told her everything. I'm in love with her and I've been sleeping with your wife. Right. After we got divorced, shortly after. Okay. Within a few days. Okay. okay. Not divorced, uh, split up. Split up, okay. Yeah. I, of course, lost my mind. And um, I don't even remember. It's such a blur. But there was like a few-day period where he was like making up some other stuff that wasn't true, just adding stuff in. And um, he worked for me at the time. And so she kind of realized that he was as much of a scumbag as I was at the time. So he left and uh, he went down to my shop and I went down there with her and uh, he, he was, I walked into my warehouse and my business and he walked out and we were like nose to nose and he was, um, he was holding this truck tie down, 
like the ratchet tie-downs. Yeah. Right, tie-downs. And um, I just told him he needed to leave. No, I didn't really say it that way. I said it much worse. <laughs> <laughs> told him he needed to leave. Yeah. Don't ever come around me or yeah. my kids or anything. And she said, you know, I think he might hurt himself. And I said, I don't care. And uh, it's like the cleaned up version of all of it. And And so he walked out the back of my warehouse. And, you know, I was pretty angry. But I, I didn't want him to do something stupid. And so I called his ex and said, hey, just call the police so they can they'll 5150 him if he's going to do something, you know. And then like an hour later, we got a phone call from the sheriff saying that they have identified a body hanging and he went up behind my shop and hung himself. That's why he had the truck tied down. So that was like that whole experience was I can't even describe how bizarre it was. I mean, even to the point of me sitting in the apartment that we that I'd moved into and the, his mom there and his mom was like a bad drug addict and she's screaming and then his his ex was there and all these people are crying and I'm still angry at him. Right. So it was just a really really bizarre situation. What were so I mean, you know, it goes without saying but I'm I'm really sorry that happened. What was going on for you? when you got that phone call? Um, it just was sort of a shocking, I don't even really remember yeah. too clearly, to be honest. There was a few things that transpired. Um, he was obviously mentally ill because he had called called his old best friend's wife and told her that he was in love with her. So it was, there was some odd, there was a number of other things too that came out that was really bizarre. He just lived really unwell. Yeah, yeah. And so... What that did was that, like, all of the secrets were out. It, like, completely purged everything. Like, there was no more secrets in the relationship. So we unfiled for divorce, and we stayed together for three more years. Wow. Yeah. So it was it was so traumatic yeah. that nobody could even really relate. To, I mean, we both went through something that was so bizarre. Right. So you kind of needed each other at that yeah. point because no one else understood. We almost bonded over it. Yeah. Really, in a yeah. odd way. No, yeah. you did. It's mm-hmm. it's trauma bond. Mm. That's what it's called. Mm. That's in, that's incredible in a very literal sense. How did you stay sober through something like that? Oddly enough, uh, there wasn't one single time that I thought about drinking. I don't know if it's like the foundation that I had in recovery or if it was because I worked through the steps early. And at that point I continued doing the steps again. And, um, I don't know if it just was that, that really just is not an option. I mean, I just had a conversation with somebody in this group online that people say like, I'm part of the, no matter what club. Yeah. And for some reason people get stuck on that. They get stuck that that means, that means that, you don't do anything else. You just won't drink no matter what. Which <laughs> right. the 12 steps right. and the program tell you that that, that that is not what will give you relief. Right. right? That's it's Working abstinence. the 12 steps right. is what gives you relief. My view on it, and it seems like it would be, I've never heard anybody say, I'm part of the no matter what club and I don't do anything else for my sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. They're not implying that that is the only thing they do. Right, and and for the people who are listening, um, who don't know what we're talking about, the no matter what club is it, it's a saying. I have no idea if it's specific to 
you know, Southern, Southern California 12 step, but it means we, you know, it's the saying that like, I don't drink or use no matter what, like no matter what period, end of story. And so we're sort of talking about that as that doesn't mean that that's the only thing you do, that you show up and participate in recovery and don't drink no matter what. Like it, it, it it's a whole process. It's not just the abstinence right. piece. Right. The point of it behind it from what, you know, how I see it anyway is that is that it, it is not an option no not matter option. how painful it gets. And what that means, and I, and that's sort of probably where my head was at. Yeah. That that was not an option. But it meant that I had to, one of the greatest things that I've been able to do for my sobriety is is to be vulnerable with at least a few people, if not more, yeah. a lot of people now, but yeah. in, in those earlier years, just to be more vulnerable and transparent with a few people. Because when I was able to talk about it and get support from people, it took all the power out of it. I think we have a lot of people who deal with the topic of being upset with someone who kills themselves. What is it like to deal with grief over with someone you are insanely angry at as well? And the anger really after that moment went away. I was no longer really, I was more like in shock yeah. that that happened. I never took it on. I never thought, it's, is it my fault? I never took any responsibility as far as like making it my fault. I mean, he made his own decision. And for whatever reason, and I'm not the kind of person that like, I can be the kind of person that beats myself up over Something everything like yeah. <laughs> all the time, right? right? Like nobody needs to pull my covers. Like right. I've already <laughs> thought about all those things and I beat myself up a hundred times. Right. So, you know, I'm extremely aware of, of my defects and, and I just recognize that that decision that he made was a decision he made, Right. you know? So but the anger went out, like did, you didn't have a lot of ink, lingering anger? No, I've spoken in front of groups before, and um, I never really got even sad about it. But when I've spoken about it, I have gotten emotional when I've talked about it. So there's there's something there, you know. What do you think that is? Probably just simply that it was just super gnarly, like yeah. really traumatic and sad for him that that had to be the way that he goes. I mean, he had a baby the day before with, from oh somebody. Gosh. Yeah. So he made that decision the day after oh. his child was born. They weren't together, but I mean, Still. it's just obviously wow. a sick person. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, so you and your wife stayed. Your ex-wife stayed together three more years, right? And um, and then what happened? The stuff that that really made it so that we weren't a good match just kind of came to the surface again. Yeah. And it wasn't any sort of infidelity or anything like that. It was just. And and interestingly enough, when that time came, we were both very calm about it. I mean, we were, I remember she was like online dating when I was like still living in the house. And I was like, oh, what's he like? You know, like, <laughs> did you meet, was he a nice guy? I mean, we were both just very, very yeah. much checked out yeah. at that point. Yeah. You know? So it, it really, I think, was a much better way for it yeah. to end. Yeah. You know? It hasn't always been, since then, it, it has been contentious often, but... So you, um, and how old were your kids at that time? I believe they were, um, I was just trying to remember this the other day. I believe they were around like six and almost eight. Okay. Right around there. How were they taking all of this? My younger one, who was much more reserved, just got really quiet. And my older one, who is not reserved, got really, really upset. 
Yeah. So that was, and for quite a while, she would share that that was the worst day of her life. I know. What does that, how did you handle? You know, I've never talked to them about any of those types of issues. I don't know if their, if their mom has, I mean, I, I heard my daughter mention something one time that gave me the impression that maybe something was said about my behavior, but, um, I just said that, you know, we weren't good, a good match for each other. Yeah. And, and, it, and really, really for me, moving on from that was that, um, especially being girls, like yeah. I, I need to, it wasn't, I'm not saying it was her fault because it was just a, not a good match. Right. And if I, if I couldn't be affectionate in the relationship and show love and affection, then what example are they getting? Right. Especially as, as girls, right? Right. As young women. So that became important to me that to be like in a, in a healthy example of a relationship for them. And how long were you sober at this time? I was probably like 14 years sober at that point, maybe 13, somewhere around there. So what's cool about that is that you had that foundation of recovery and mm-hmm. you had done work, enough work, so that when things fell apart, you had that stability right. already, you know, around right. you, despite the, you know, the other stuff. So what happened after you guys got divorced and where did your life go from there? So shortly after that, um, I met, I had decided that no more, I didn't want to date any more sober women. I was just. That's the problem. Yeah, that's what I, (laughs) I actually, I felt like there was room for one nightmare. I'm the nightmare. We don't need two. (laughs) So I just wanted to date a normal. Yeah. A normie is what we call them, you know, in sober community. And, um, so I met somebody at the gym and, uh. And this started a chapter that was probably equally, if not more difficult in my sobriety, um, because she liked to drink and, but she didn't like to drink the way I drank. And so, you know, there was a lot of situations that would come up like just some behavior issues and some dishonesty and stuff like that on her part. And, and through that whole process, she, uh, she didn't, she ended up getting sober at one point, but she just continued drinking and negotiating about, you know, we we went to this counselor and the counselor said, well, why don't you just have two drinks? And she said, how about three? And they said, well, two would probably be good because they had determined that past two, she, it could easily get out of control. And, you know, then I'd watch her drink like five and say she only had two. So you're dating you know. an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So no normie, but an, but an like alcoholic. Like the kids up from school in a blackout and oh domestic violence against me. And, uh, you know, just a lot of that. What's it like to be in a situation, a domestic violence situation against a man with a, I, when it's the other way around? I actually wasn't wasn't interested in pressing charges or anything. It wasn't like yeah, were you just super like, violent yeah, or anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was happened to throw a mug that broke on my face and so there was a lot of blood, but it wasn't like Yeah. Nothing yeah. that it nothing that I would normally really get need to like press charges for or anything right. like that. Right. And but but because the police were called and other people got involved, you know, the state then Yeah, it takes it on themselves. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So she's she this normie that you pick to stay away from sober sober women yeah. be, you know, turns out to be an alcoholic. How did that resolve? So, you know, and I don't, I think that there's um, some benefits to talking about this because I've known several people who have been in the same situation. For whatever reason, I couldn't leave. And 
you know, she had kids. I was their stepdad, and so it, it made it a little more complicated, but yeah. I just couldn't leave. I don't know why. I knew it was unhealthy. I was kind of riding on, well, only if she could just get sober that all of this would go away. And right. if she'd just get sober, then all the problems right. would be solved. And, and, you know, the way that it ended was it wasn't even – I felt bad about it, actually. And I just said I can't do it anymore, and it wasn't like a angry – awful situation. It was just, I just can't. The interesting thing about that is, is that I would, and I don't know if other, maybe some of your listeners have dealt with this, but I would actually tell her that I feel like I'm getting to the point where I'm going to be done. And I don't want to get to that point because I don't think I can turn it around. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like not even any big situations or anything, all of a sudden the light switch just shut off and it was done and there was no turning back. And it was over just like that. Yeah. I think a lot of our, you know, you've, you've talked about a bunch of different things that I think a lot of people can relate to, you know, being in a loveless marriage, you know, infidelity, loss, grief, trauma bonding. I mean, there's so many topics in your story that I think a lot of people relate to. And the biggest piece that, you know, people want to hear about is, or like, what were the, what are the feelings that go on? How can they relate to those feelings that you're having. And it sounds like a big piece of each of these chapters of your life was coming to a, coming to a, a bottom, an emotional bottom with this. Like this is, this is where like in each of those situations, it was, I can't do this anymore. This is, this is, this is the bottom for me. And a lot of people think that when they get sober, that all their problems go away or bad things shouldn't happen to you because you're doing it right or you're going to meetings or you're whatever, however your sobriety is formed that it's not fair or whatever it is. And the truth is that life continues to happen. Right. And we now are a raw nerve. And so we have to figure out how to not be constantly a raw nerve and and work through those. And so that's where like doing the, you know, the recovery piece, showing up and being around other people in recovery makes so much sense because life still continues to happen. Right. And that's what happened for you. You know, life still continued to happen. And, you know, if, if you're an alcoholic like me, like the solution needs to be fast, yeah. right? Fast. If it's not like an unhealthy solution, then it's probably not fast. It's probably <laughs> slow every single time. It's so and true. So being in that discomfort is brutal for me. Like I, yeah. I remember describing it, and I still do sometimes as, as like when I'm uncomfortable, as like an emotional peanut allergy. Yes. Like to where I'm like, oh my god, why am I so uncomfortable? What? And it's like I, I honestly don't think that normal people like have such an issue with feeling a little uncomfortable. Yeah. And I and and the true nature of an alcoholic is selfish and self-centered to the extreme, right? Mm-hmm. And so I used to think that had to do with like, well, I didn't want to share things with people or I didn't want to, you know, give I, I being generous was hard because I'd have to let go of something or, you know, stuff like that and at least how I relate to it today is that it is more about being hyper-focused on how I feel. Yeah. In every single situation, feel good, feel bad. And so for a long time, like if I'm uncomfortable, I'm hyper-focused on it and I cannot stay in that place. And I've done everything from, you know, I was talking about before this started, started chewing Nicorette <laughs> with never even smoking. You know, a friend oh my of mine gosh, gave yes. me some. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell them about this. A friend of mine, you know, I was in a 12-step meeting and a friend of mine gave me some 
I said, do you have any gum? And he said, well, I have Nicorette. And I said, okay, well, yeah, give me that. And it made me, like, feel nauseous and lightheaded. Yeah. And then the next week, he gave me another piece. And then I ended up, you know, I had to drive up to, like, Bishop near Mammoth and bought a case of it at Costco. And I, you know, <laughs> just eBay and, like, for yeah. 12 years with, like, a one-year break in the middle of it, I've chewed Nicorette. I mean, heavily, heavily addicted to it without even smoking, you know. So I've done everything to... When you got really into motorcycles too, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, and really, a lot of that stuff, what I've noticed about myself, I don't know that this is true for everybody, but part of me, this might sound odd, but I don't want to get too good. Like I like having a dark side. Yeah. And so this could be true. This could not be true. It could could resolve itself in five years or 10 years or the longest. You reserve the right to change your mind. Yes. But at this point, and what it appears is that to have like some some of that darkness, mm-hmm. you know, makes me it like fills that part of me. Yeah. And if it's not destructive, like motorcycles, I got really into guns, and so go shooting all the time and ride motorcycles and that stuff. It like it fills up that part of it. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah, I. Destructive. I really relate to that. I was talking to a friend about that just the other day. And especially for me, as I've gotten older, the, like the difficulty of aging and, you know, you know, for me, like driving a minivan and having the car seats and, you know, the weight and the, and the aging and the, it just like the whole thing is really hard. Like it's not, it's, it doesn't satisfy that dark piece right. of my personality. And yet I've become this person who that doesn't have a really good place in my life, particularly in this chapter. And, you know, it's it's a real part, like that real piece of the need. I was, I was talking to a friend of mine, says, you know, some days I just, I, sometimes I just want to go like tattoo my whole face, you know, yeah, like yeah, I don't, right. I like, you like, I totally, you know, Mike Tyson, like, I don't get it. But like, then I, at the same time, I kind of do get it. Like yeah. sometimes you just, it's kind of those intrusive thoughts. Like sometimes I just want to like, go streaking through the streets, you know, just like I've whatever. Often my thing that I visualize without even thinking about it, it's almost like a subconscious like little tape that plays yeah. is like doing like 130 on my Harley out in the desert and shooting my gun off <laughs> off of my Harley. And like, yeah. like, and it's yeah. just like a fire inside that yeah. I feel like I need to do it. And it's usually like when I'm at the gym working out or I'm feeling good, but I yeah. just feel like I want to just, just be rage. Like, yeah, you want to rage, yeah, right, you know, you want right. to rage. I mean, that's, I used to go to, you know, like I love heavy metal, like mm-hmm. love, love, love. I'm crazy 90s heavy metal. And, um, you know, I'll be in the minivan blasting Metallica and like, you know, just visualizing a whole other scenario, right, <laughs> you right. know, in my yeah. life when I used to go to mosh pits and get in fist fights. And it was just like, you know, sometimes you just want to like, you know, something, someone was, uh, there was like a teacher that was mean to, you know, one of my boys. And, you know, I was like, I'm going to, you know, let's go. We're going to find this. Yeah, you yeah. Know? It's just like that piece of you just comes out. And that was the piece of me that ran my life, mm-hmm. you know, when I was using. And now I have to find new ways to interact with it and still say, like, that's a piece of me that's like, oh, you're so uncool. Right. Look at this, your life. Oh, my God, this is where sexy went to die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I, and, and I mean, at the same time, the other half of that is, like, appreciating, like, the calm and the mellow <laughs> because yeah. that part, yes. I mean, I remember I had this Jeep Wrangler and I had this tire cover and I painted on the back 
on a tire cover big, right? And I think, how offensive. I'm listening to punk rock music super loud, pulling up next to people at light. Like, I think, <laughs> what if I pulled up next to somebody and my freaking daughter was in the car and some dude, I'd probably say something to him. Like, what an idiot. You know, and, I, yeah. and at the time I was like, yeah, I don't care, you yeah. know, like, yeah. but, but I can like appreciate now, like, like if I'm listening to music yeah. and my window's down and I have it loud and I pull up next to somebody, I'm like, oh, I don't want to offend them. And so I turn it yeah. down a little bit. Like, it's I the, also enjoy that part, but I yeah. just don't want to get to the point where it's. Yeah, you're too I, good. Yeah, I really yeah. don't. I mean. I get that. I makes get it more exciting. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I totally. Yeah. I think you're safe. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you're, I think you're, I don't think it's going to happen. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you're right. Like the peace, this, I, I can slow down my mind. You know, that mind going 150 miles an hour. I relate to that. One of my, one, there's like one thing, my Harley equivalent is, you're going to laugh. It's kind of embarrassing because it's not really Harley equivalent, but Bikram yoga. Okay. So Bikram yoga, it's a carpeted room. Right. They turn the heat up to like 110, 105, mm. depending carpeted. Okay. It's 90 minutes and like heaters, the full thing. And you're doing these poses and you sweat like a, like you, I mean, you're drenched when you come right, out of there, I'm like sure. drowned rat status. And when I'm in there, I honestly can only think about surviving. Like I can't think about anything else. I can only think about, okay, I have four more poses and then I can get out of this hot room and like I, or whatever it is. And as weird and like medieval torture as that sounds, what the piece for me is not having to engage in the psychotic, like massive babble that's going around, around in my head. Like it's just loud in there mm-hmm. and it quiets it. And that's what drugs and alcohol did too. Right. Except maybe some of the uppers maybe turned that shit up. But yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. like <laughs> it just quiet I mean, particularly alcohol and downers for me made that quiet. And learning how to find that in sobriety has been a whole other realm of things. And right. sometimes I have to learn to live with it being loud. Yeah. I can only imagine drinking now how different it would be as an adult, like as a, a grown man, the set of problems that would come with that. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, because you and so I both much. got sober really young. Yeah. I was been, 19, you were 22. Right. Yeah. And so the... Oh, it would be I mean, unimaginable. Mm-hmm. Unimaginable. With kids and... Oh, yeah. And just credit. <laughs> yeah. Everything, <laughs> Everything, honestly. like and, yeah. and the way that I drink, it's so, it's so bizarre, but it's so super, super clear is that when alcohol hits me... Like the physical allergy sets in where I like feel it. Mm-hmm. Any decision, it doesn't matter. I mean, I used to drive every single day, pretty much every single day when I would drink. I didn't want to drive, and then I would start drinking, and I would just grab my keys and go drive around. And you know what else is kind of odd is so when I'm drinking, I'm not thinking things through, and so I would think I'm going to go drive around. But if a cop gets behind me, as soon as I see him, I'll just turn. Yeah, that was the whole solution. Yeah. <laughs> just turn. It's like. I pulled over. I just yeah. pulled over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but yeah. it was, but with that whole drinking, like yeah. liking to drive and, you yeah. know, yeah. and, no, you know, it's... all of that stuff. And, and I think about even, even that, like I was drinking and driving all the time and blackouts. I'd, I'd, I'd get up in the morning and I had to go find my car and I had no idea how I got home and then my car's there and somehow I parked it. And, and then I think my daughters are out driving on the road and, and I'll find out about, Somebody drinking and driving. Yeah, or, it's scary. Yeah. Or in Mission Viejo, they'll have like like 
on Facebook, they'll say like, hey, watch out. There's a sobriety checkpoint over on yeah. the street. And I'll usually comment and say, well, that's nice. You know, yeah. take a different street so you can murder my daughters when you're driving drunk. You know what I mean? Like I get like very protective of <laughs> right. that. You know? Yeah, they're your daughters. Right. But we are experiencing what other people experienced when we were out there right. doing our thing. Mm-hmm. So what, like, take me from, so that, you know, how did you, so you, the sober relationship, two sober people, that didn't work out. The dating the normie who turns into an alcoholic, that didn't work right. out. So kind of, were you, what was the recipe, you know, I know today you have a beautiful relationship and a beautiful life. What was the recipe that, you know, got it right this time? Or what, what did you find out that you were, that you needed to look at? So for a couple of, I dated for a couple of years after that and um, a lot, like went out with a lot of people. And, you know, the, one of the interesting thing that started happening was like, because of my ex that was drinking, I would get to the point where if we're going somewhere, like I would have anxiety about even wanting to go anywhere because I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and was, if she's going to drink too much, what's she going to do? Is she going to act different? Is she going to be talking to some guy and like any of that stuff? And so when I was dating people after that situation, I would, you know, I was open to dating somebody who drank. Right. Because in that other relationship for a period of time, I was fine with it. Right. I mean, I would even sit at a bar and she'd order a martini and I'd order a Red Bull, no problem. Yeah. And, but I would, after that, I would go out and like, I would just notice like a little change in their voice or maybe they would like become a little bit argumentative and I just could not do it. Like it. It became crystal clear that I needed to date somebody who was sober. Yeah. That that was, you know, and, and dating somebody who's sober when you're sober can be amazing. Yeah. If you're both pursuing yeah. a spiritual life, you yeah. have that in common and, you know. Yeah. So that's kind of where where that went. And, and so what happened was when I was in my marriage, and, um, and I think this is common for a lot of people, is that right after I got out of that marriage, I got into something that was some of the things that I didn't like about my marriage, the next person was the opposite. Yeah, yeah. And in my mind, I was like, wow, this is perfect. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it really, yeah. I, I thought that, right? Yeah. And so when I got out of that relationship and I started dating a lot, I was finally in a place where I could say, well, and, and I had a bunch of like little one month, two month, three month little things that would go on and and I would just say, no, I, I'm, I can't do this. this uh, that's not what I'm looking for in a person. What are the ideals that I want? And like I was very clear on what things I was willing to deal with and what things what things I, I wasn't looking for. And the other thing is, is I um, I realized, um, you know, I went to, we did a lot of like marriage counseling and relationship counseling during those time periods. And I realized that however those people are, there's nothing wrong with that. I just have to make the decision if it's something that I'm looking for. Yeah, whether you know? it's right for you. Right, right. And yeah. so it wasn't like... I would just end something with somebody because they weren't how I thought they should be. I just became very calm and clear about what I wasn't looking for. Yeah. What I was looking for. So. Well, you realize that you're not going to change people. Right. You're right. not going to, you, when you enter into that relationship, you have to figure out whether or not you're okay with the person come as they are. Right. And my sponsor used to say, like, you know, would you marry this person as they are today? Right. And if not, then no. Because in my mind, I was always, interested in the person they were going to be in five course, years. Yeah. What their potential was. <laughs> right. Their potential. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm queen potential. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I think for the most part that is a great way to, like, go into a situation. I think it's okay to have some expectations because you don't 
if you start dating somebody, you don't know them, right? Like you yeah. don't really know them. Yeah. So over a period of one, two, three, five years, you start finding out more of who they are. You figure out what works and what doesn't. At that point, I, I think that um, it's very natural to voice like some needs that that you're looking for yeah. that maybe aren't being met or yeah. something that you don't like. For sure. And, but that doesn't mean that the person has to change it either. Right, right. Right. Then you can make the decision to to say, well, I either have to accept it or maybe this isn't right for me. Yeah. You know. So yeah. it's nice to have like more of a um, passive approach to it instead of trying to strangle it in the direction that you want it to be. <laughs> you know, yes. it's like exhausting. Yeah, it is exhausting. Yeah. What What is your your life like today? I'm engaged, getting married in five weeks, Congratulations. roughly. Thank you. I'm in the best relationship I've ever been in. And uh, it's interesting because one of my biggest defects was, and I didn't really... I was told this, but I didn't really recognize it. But when there was a situation that would come up, there was an argument or something or a disagreement, I wanted to talk about it. It's in my nature to like, let's talk about it. And the feedback that I would get, when I say feedback, their complaint, you know. <laughs> when I say feedback, right, right. I mean yelling. When, yeah. Right. Their complaint yeah. is, is that I'm badgering them. Right. And I'm, I'm like dominating the situation by getting louder and like needing to bigger. Right. Right. And and to me, it was like, well, it's just because, you know, I can't whisper at that moment. Yeah. Like I'm full of energy. Yeah. So what I realized very quickly in this relationship was, um, she needs time to process it. Yeah. And for whatever reason, maybe I hit a bottom with doing that before. Maybe it's because I have a lot of respect for her. So I want it just feels good to try something different. And so I remember, you know, we don't argue hardly at all, but there was a couple little arguments or whatever that um, at that moment I could tell that, that she needed some time and every single bit of my DNA was like, like I need to talk about it, but I just said, okay, can you just do me a favor and can we circle back and talk about it when you're ready to? And that like feeds on itself, right? Yeah. Like it felt so good to try something different yeah. and have a calm approach. And then I get good results and yeah. it like builds respect for each other. And so that's yeah. kind of how yeah. our relationship has gone. And we, we're best friends. We do everything together. We have similar interests. We have similar dislikes, you know. I mean, it, it's just amazing. And, and you know, the interesting thing is, is that there's people that – um We've only been together for a couple of years, but I knew her before that. But you get people that are unhappy in a marriage or a relationship long term. And like, I'll be talking about something and they'll say, well, you know, you, well, you'll see. You've only been together a couple of years. You'll see. Give it 10 years. And basically they're saying, give it 10 years, you'll be miserable, you know. And I don't. I've done long term relationships and they didn't start out that way, this way. And they don't have the nurturing and respect and the the intimacy and the friendship and all of those things that this has. So who knows? But I, I, yeah, I, I feel mean, like the foundation is is great. And you're using the skills you learned. It was funny. I was talking to Christiana actually just before you got here. We were talking about one of the skills, you know, tools that I use, which is there's science behind that when you get – upset past a certain point, they use a one to 10 scale. And if you get past a seven, that your brain actually changes, the, your inner ear gets smaller. It's a it's an evolutionary mechanism. And your eyes change. You can only focus. You can't, your periphery changes. Like really crazy. You wow, read about yeah, it and you're like, yeah. oh my God, this makes so much sense. So basically you cannot hear 
the same way right. when you get past this certain point when you're elevated. And I have learned that I say not so nice things when I make it to seven, you right. know, and things I can't take back and things I'm going to have to make amends for and things get messy at a seven for me because I'm like you. You know, I like to get in your face and I want to talk about it and I'm intense about it and you're not going to walk away from this conversation. Right. And what I learned was to say, okay, I'm feeling like I'm at a seven, you know, I mean, if you're, that's the language that I use because my husband knows what that means. I can't talk about this right now. Can we revisit, can we circle back in 45 minutes or in like I set a period of time? Right. And if he has to do the same thing, I ask for a period of time because my fear was always that if we walk away from a conversation that it'll never come back. Or if he says, we'll circle back, when will we circle back? I need to know. I'm very, you know, excited about this topic. Not I just need that, resolution. You know what happens when you don't resolve it. Oh, yeah. And, and anytime I, it comes yeah. up again, you're at like a oh, level eight immediately. Oh, God. You immediately. Know? Yeah. And right. then... and. And I mean, I tend to be the kind I like I kind of have to resolve things a few times, you know, talk about it, whatever. Sure. That's how I process. So we use that language of I let's circle back and kind of set a time frame so that he knows I'm not blowing him off or I know he's not blowing me off. And those simple things, and I think you, you know, you're sharing that is it changes the relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's unbelievable how much it changes. Like when you just acknowledge that someone has to process a disagreement or an idea differently and you respect that instead of trying to force them and you give them that space to be themselves, it's amazing how much better the relationship is. Well, and it it can make me feel good for doing it because it's contrary action. Right. It it makes them feel like you're respecting them. Like there's there's a lot of it's compromise. Right. It's, you know, when yeah. people talk about work in relationships and and this is the type of thing like, okay, I'm going to do something differently. I'm going to not try to change you. Mm-hmm. So a, There was another interesting tool that, that I had heard at some point and then I started practicing where if I feel elevated at all mm-hmm. inside, mm-hmm. pause, no matter what. So when you say pause, do you mean pause voice and physically? Like do yep. you just literally stop moving? Well, and talking, talking, stop talking. Yeah. Or, you know, or when I want to say something and I'm feeling that elevation. Yeah. Just don't just wait, wait. And I would do that over and over and over. And what it does is I say very different things when I've calmed down. Yeah. So it just like gave me this tool and it, and you know, anytime it's just like getting sober, right? Like those tools come with just beating it into my mind mm-hmm. over and over and over. I have to practice, 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 mm-hmm. practice. And after the hundredth time, it becomes somewhat instinctual to do that, right? And yeah. so just like practicing those things allow me to like wait. And then, then because I get, the other thing that happens is, is I get quiet. So like if, my, if, I, if, I, if I'm bothered about something or my feelings get hurt, if we get into discussion is where I would like become excited and my voice would raise. Otherwise, I'm like a sea anemone where I'm I like <laughs> like back out, you know. And and many times, like I just did this inventory recently, and it was, you know, the resentments and some of the resentments. Like it made me feel really crappy afterwards. I haven't met with my sponsor yet to go over it, but um, some of the things that were on there that made me feel crappy is like my insecurity, 
yeah. my uh, judgment towards other people. Yeah. Like it was all stuff that I'm resentful at myself for because what will happen is I'll, I'll, I will voice some of those, like in my relationship, I'll say, hey, listen, you didn't do anything wrong here. I just want to let you know. Well, let me back up. I try not to let her know sometimes, but I am super obvious. <laughs> right, right. If there's like your face. It's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> it's impossible. Like I cannot hide yeah, it, yeah. right? Like I'm not going to say anything, but my whole face says it all. Totally. And I'm trying. I'm thinking like just process it, just process yeah. it. Just get it, get over it, get, get past yeah. the process. You don't need to bring up every crazy thing that comes in your mind, you know? <laughs> and so, but I just can't sometimes. <laughs> and so then, you know, then she's wondering like what's wrong. Right. Because she can, she's Sense really it. in touch with me, right? Yeah. So. I'll just say, listen, you didn't do anything wrong. I'm just feeling insecure about this situation. And by doing that, if I don't, if I'm like a CNN an enemy and I like pull away, mm-hmm. it's because I'm trying to hurry up and process it. So I don't have, it's not that I don't want to talk about it, but honestly, sometimes I don't, like I said, I don't need to bring everything up. Right. right? I right. mean, I can be, you know, obsessive, compulsive, odd, Weird thoughts. Tell me not to think of something. I'll think of it. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just part of being alcoholic, I think. And so I don't want to talk about every little thing. And it's not because I'm not willing to. I don't think it's in her best interest for me to. Right. 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 I've learned that. I've learned that. Like, hey, guess what? Every single, you know, opinion or thought you have is not helpful. No. Right. Yeah. There's a level of honesty that is detrimental. Right. So that's sort of the just having those discussions and not like doing things differently and all of those things are just what I feel like is a foundation for a great relationship, you know? And it's just, I don't know if it's getting older or if it's being sober for 24 years or if it's a combination of both, but it just is getting quieter. And it was really, really, really loud. And new, like when I was 22, when I got sober, like really, really loud, everything was. Yeah. Why... You know, I, I ask these questions to try to help, you know, maybe someone will relate or hear something. Why do you still do the inventory and what is that? Like, why do you still write down your resentments and look for your part? What does that give you? Well, um, somewhat self-preservation. I don't want to continue being uncomfortable. So you found relief doing it. Right. It used to be that um, it wasn't out of good virtue at all. It was really literally... So I didn't feel crazy. Yeah. And over time, that's sort of changed into wanting to grow. You know, the whole thing with regrets and looking, I mean, I, I, I don't, I regret some of the harm that was caused in my marriage, um, but I don't regret my decisions and all of those experiences because it's like that game Jenga, right? If I pull out those experiences, then maybe it all falls apart and, I, and I'm not the person that I am today, right? So yeah. I need to be grateful for those experiences. And the know? beautiful thing is that you like the person that you are today. Even right. in those moments where you're struggling to like that person, your life is dedicated to trying to like yourself. Right. And and for me, that's also a big piece of my recovery is, you know, just trying to love myself. Just trying yeah. to like, you know, and, and there's some days I do really well and there are some days not so much. And just you know, starting over and, and you've been able to do that with through all the things. And it's just remarkable to me that, um, and, I, and I know you, you know, in our community and I know you do the work right? and I know you've worked really hard to be able to, you know, quiet those tapes and change, you know, pause and do all the things that you do. And what I love about recovery is that you take these 
you know, you, you our viewers can't see you, but you're, you know, tattooed up to your neck and like you take these macho, you know, hardened guys and they do emotional work and they can have like amazing, vibrant, vulnerable conversations. Right. And you don't get that anywhere, you know? And especially for me as a sober woman, I expect that from men. So I have a hard time yeah. if I'm not getting that from somebody because right. I basically grew up in 12 steps. So, yeah. you know, that is just such a, an amazing piece of the journey for me is being around people who can connect and particularly being around men who can connect. I noticed that um, when I was uh, when I was dating a lot and going out with non-sober people, and I think arrogance is like a really ugly character trait. So I'm always like hesitant to say anything that is like a compliment to myself because I feel like it's gross, you know. But this is not that's not what I mean by this. But I would be on these dates, and there were several times where women would think we had like this amazing connection. Right. Yes. I mean, I'd be on the date for like two hours knowing that I'm not going to go on another date with them, but I enjoyed the company. Yeah. And because, and it's because of being sober and learning how to communicate and becoming transparent. And in the sober community, that becomes the norm. Right. Really. Like it's not that odd to be open and transparent. Right. Yeah. But in, in the the regular regular world, world, they're like, Wow. Yeah. This is amazing. And I just want to be like, well, I got it in this yeah, step yeah, program. Yeah, totally. Know? It was funny when we started the podcast and, and I was like, you know, oh, I don't know how this will do. You know, we'll see. And people were just blown away, you know, by the conversations. And what's funny is I have these conversations every day. You right. know, for, for us, I think you and I have had this conversation in the parking lot, you know, after a 12-step meeting. Like right. we've just connected and – that's a normal part of my life and it's one of my favorite parts of my life. But I didn't I forget that it's remarkable and that people want to know or hear about right. it. And and I have the same thing. Like people will think that I'm like their best friend or, you know, whatever. Like there's this massive connection. I right. have that I've ha- I've had that exact experience, actually more so with women. Mm. And I didn't feel anything. Right. I, yeah, like I was just, right. you know, I mean, I don't not in a mean way, but right. just like <laughs> You know, I just, it's just like, you know, I'm just getting to know you. Right, right. (laughs) So, yeah. Which brings it back to like, if you're sober and you're dating and and you become, and you're married or begin a relationship with another sober person, the level of satisfaction and commonality with like spiritual growth. Yeah. I mean, it just becomes. Makes a big difference. Right. And like when I was dating like women who weren't sober, it was, you're only going to talk like so far. I'm not going to get deep into like spiritual conversations usually because it just isn't like a common yeah. thought for them, right. you know, where, right. and, and that's okay. They're, you know, it's just, I really enjoy that. So if I'm dating somebody who's sober or soon to be married to somebody who's sober, it's like a huge plus for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It makes a big difference. And I've done both sides. So <laughs> yeah. You, you've it was done a disaster. It. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever, with getting sober at 22, have you ever thought like m- maybe it was a phase or maybe I was young or any of those things creep back in for you? That's a very common thing. Obviously, that's why you would ask the question, right? It's super common for yeah. young people. Never. <laughs> Never. Not one time. That's amazing. Because because of the struggle that I've had yeah. with just doing normal things for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just reminds me that, I mean, I can tell you, we'll watch a movie show and it'll flash on a gun, flash on it literally a half a second. And she'll say, what kind of gun is that? And I'm like, oh, I think that was a SIG uh, P226. 
like because I am just so obsessive about things. I get so into mm-hmm. whatever I'm interested in. It's not normal. Like it's you know. <laughs> yes. And I mean, yeah. it's good. I like yeah. it, but yeah. and that's part of like funneling that stuff into the positive. into something yeah. that is that fulfills that sort of darkness, but it's a positive thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, I the crazy has <laughs> has like it's, it reinforces I, it. I really appreciate that because. There's a lot been a lot of the struggle and the pain in my life that keeps me in check with that this is still alive and well. Like that right. imaginary fight that I have yesterday is another, you know, oh yeah, it's this is alive and well. This is alive and well. This is something that I need to treat on a daily basis. Like, hey, if I'm having conversations like that, like what's that about? That's that's not that's not actually a normal thing to go right. on for me anymore. What is, where's my self-esteem right now? What's mm-hmm. going on with it? So it, it it gives me that. And over the years, I can see my behavior, in my behavior, how I need to, you know, build up my defenses, so to speak, against a relapse. Right. And I know a lot of people who've had more smooth sailing, and I think it's easier to forget that this piece is still alive in us when you don't see it constantly. Right. And, you know, being sober is one of those interesting things where we could list out all of the amazing things that it provides, this wonderful life, Mm. like just, you know, on a spiritual level, good examples for our children, like they get to grow up in a sober home, all of those things. And we don't really have a choice. (laughs) We're going to, we'll burn it to the ground. Like you say, do you want to burn it to the ground or do you want to have this amazing life? Both. Right. But the, but the. Where the challenge is, is that if I don't regularly maintain that, yeah, then I slowly slip back into a place where I don't, I'm not pursuing like spirituality and I'm not maintaining my sobriety and I'm not feeding that. And all of a sudden, and it's been, I've done it many times. And, uh, and now I've gotten to the point where I can recognize when it's happening. Yeah. Much faster. Restless, irritable, discontent. Like my kids are bothering me. My relationship bothers me. I'm uncomfortable at work. I, I, all of these things. And then, and so you would think a normal person would say, oh, well, I need to work on my kids and I need to work on mm-hmm. my wife wrong and I them? need to work on the job because I'm not happy with that. But what over and over and over and over and over for me, I need to focus on my program pursue the things that raise my self-esteem about myself, look at things like, why am I being judgmental? Why am I um, snapping? Why am I not able to like stay calm and respect the person that's talking to me? Why I start looking at all of those things and I grow spiritually and all of a sudden all those things don't bother me mm-hmm. or as much. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. I, you know, I've, I feel very grateful and for all of that and all of those tools and grateful to, you know, see them working in your life. It's yeah, been awesome. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. And I just adore you and appreciate your vulnerability. And I think that a lot of the stuff that you talked about, a lot of people are going to relate to and be able to take some of the tools that you talked about yeah. and actually apply them. Like from listening to this, like maybe someone will practice pausing or some of the techniques that we use. So that's right. that's an added bonus. Well, thank you. Thanks for having yeah, me. Absolutely. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. 
For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 